I don't know if your mind works like mine. I don't know if anybody's mind works like mine, but <laughs> there are things that I wonder about. You know, even as a kid, you know, how do the ants know where to go? You know, how did God get all the stars up there? And as I've been studying and looking at uh, my ancestry over the last few years, I wonder that I had any ancestors at all. <laughs> it's another way of saying I wonder if I should have been born at all because over the centuries and over the history of my ancestors, there were just so many things that uh, were made life very hard to survive. Every year through the 8th through the 11th century, my Viking ancestors, the Northmen, would raid the villages of my English ancestors. And they would rape and kill and plunder and do all those kind of things. And they always hit the churches and the monasteries first because that's where they felt like the, the wealth was at. And the wars between the Northmen and the English went on for hundreds of years as the Northmen occupied more and more of the British Isles. How did anybody survive that? And then in Europe, there was the Hundred Years' War. Can you imagine being at war for a hundred years? The Thirty Years' War? Dozens of wars, the Wars of the Roses, the bubonic plague that wiped out 60% of Europe. It's amazing that anybody survived, and any of us have ancestors. Then on top of that, both sides of my family came to America to escape severe religious persecution, to escape death. 400 years ago this year, this fall, one side of my family came to America for religious freedom and because they were persecuted. They came to escape tyranny and persecution and death. You see, the, the Pound side of my family, Grandma Pound's family, Edward Doty, my ninth great-grandfather, came to these shores on the Mayflower. And then in 1635, Thomas Pound came to join the Plymouth Colony, and uh, he married one of the, the women who had come on the Mayflower. So both my Grandma Pound's ancestor, Edward Doty, and my Grandpa Pound's ancestor, Thomas Pound, were part of the Plymouth Colony in the New World. And these English Puritans were quick to establish strong governments. And as you probably know from, from school and history, there was the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact, where everyone on the Mayflower signed which determined what self-government was going to look like in this new world. And so the Mayflower Compact created laws for Mayflower pilgrims and non-pilgrims as well for the good of their new colony. And it was a short document which established that the colonists would remain loyal subjects to King James despite their need for self-governments. And that the colonists would create and enact laws, ordinance, acts, constitutions, and offices for the good of the colony and abide by these laws. The colonists would create one society and work together to further it. And the colonists would live in accordance with the Christian faith. Then about nine years later, the Mayflower Compact in that form of government was followed by the government of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Company, or colony, they established a theocratic government where they recognized that God is over all governments, but they limited the church, limited government and positions in government to church members. Only church members could serve in the government. And so Governor Winthrop, the Reverend John Cotton, and other leaders sought to prevent dissenting religious views from coming in their midst. 
And because of this, over the years, many were banished because of differing religious beliefs, including Roger Williams of Salem. If you may have heard that name, he was the founder of Rhode Island, but uh, he also founded the very first Baptist church in America. And literally, Rhode Island was the only place that you could live where you really had perfect religious freedom. And the earliest governments in America, though, for the most part, other than Rhode Island, had absolutely no separation of church and state. And now the Puritan colonies in America are famous for their strict laws, for their strict punishment and swift punishment. And so back in the days of the Puritans, most aspects of their daily life, including law, was governed by religious beliefs. And people were expected to report to church every Sunday in a mannerly and obedient manner, whatever that means. <laughs> you gotta have, you gotta use your manners when you come and you gotta be obedient by going. And failure to do so resulted in a fine, sometimes as much as 50 pounds of tobacco. That's quite a fine in those days. And also getting away with the crime back then was much more difficult. For the communities were set up in small clusters of people, much like our neighborhood watch communities today. In fact, people were appointed to perform tasks as checking to make sure there was church attendance, did they go to church, and patrolling the streets, searching for unlawful behavior. And Puritans based their system of punishments on humiliation and shame. They felt that these practices would keep crime at bay out of fear of embarrassment. And you've probably seen this. You've seen that the more common punishment was being sentenced to be put in the stocks, which is a triangular-shaped wood board, as it were, and you stuck your head up here and then your hands, only your head and your hands stuck out. And uh, the offender would be forced to stay there while other people looked on and while other people threw garbage at him. And the stocks were used for various offenses, including theft and failure to attend church services. Now, one of the things I have to admit is that my ninth great-grandfather, Edward Doty, was really a scoundrel. He found himself in court several times, and the early 18th century notes of Thomas Prince describe an incident on June 18, 1621, when the first duel with a sword and a dagger, was fought in New England between two servants of Stephen Hopkins. And those two servants, one of them was Edward Doty, my ninth great-grandfather, and the other was Edward Leister, who fought, can you imagine fighting a duel with a sword in one hand, a dagger in another? And the duel ended with one being wounded in the hand and the other being wounded in the thigh. And their punishment was to be tied together head and feet together for 24 hours without meat or drink. Now think about that for a minute. I know that my head doesn't reach my feet, so it can't be my head tied to my feet. And so it was one's head tied to the other's feet, and the other's head tied to the other's feet. And they were to stay that way for 24 hours, plus you add that uh, they were both wounded. You can just see that th this was a horrible punishment. And so because they assumed their master, Stephen Hopkins, apparently taking great pity on their great pains, made a, quote, humble request upon promise of a better carriage. In other words, a better behavior. They're going to behave themselves from here on out. I know from history that my great-grandfather didn't behave himself from here on out, but they were released by the governor. Now, likewise, the other side of my family, the Schleybox, which when we get our name Schleybach, 
came to America in the 18th century. They came for religious freedom, and they came to escape persecution and tyranny and really much death among them. But they chose not to participate in government at all. You see, the Anabaptists believed in and practiced believers' baptism by immersion, which means when an adult or somebody old enough comes to faith in Jesus Christ, then they are baptized by immersion. Anabaptism means rebaptism. So even though everyone born in Europe at the time was baptized as an infant into the church, the Anabaptists refused to allow their babies to be baptized. And then they rebaptized Anabaptism adults when they came to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, even though they, many of them, to begin with, had been baptized as infants, so it was rebaptism. The problem was that every government in Europe at the time, whether it was Roman Catholic, Protestant, or Church of England, required by law all infants to be baptized and by law forbade, forbade rebaptism. And so my Anabaptist ancestors under the Protestant government in Switzerland were persecuted and killed for not baptizing infants and for baptizing adults by immersion. In some cases, it was death by drowning. This was the idea. You want to be rebaptized? You want to go under the water? They held them under the water until they drowned. And so the Anabaptists had been persecuted and killed by the hundreds for almost 300 years before they immigrated to America. And they first came to Pennsylvania and then to Ohio. And they just wanted to be left alone by the government so they could worship and serve God according to the scriptures. They had no reason to trust the government and for good reason. They had no reason to serve in the government for good reason. They had no known want to to serve in the military and those kind of things. And that's why so many Anabaptists, uh, Amish and Mennonites are still pacifists today. And we can understand that. And so in my ancestry, there's a little bit of ancestral political schizophrenia going on. That might explain a lot about me. But one of the things was true about both the Puritans and the Anabaptists. They were people of the book. They were people of the word of God. They were godly people who loved God and loved one another. In fact, the Puritans were called the godly. They were called the evangelicals. They were called the pious because everybody knew that that was their desire to to love God and love people, and they were godly people. They served God and they served one another as best as they knew how. And they just wanted to live in a place and live under a government, a government that fulfilled God's purposes, and where according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, they could lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. So this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about the purpose of government, and also what it says about being able as Christians to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. So please turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 2. The second verse of the 13th chapter of Romans. Actually, I'm going to start back at verse 1, then we'll come to verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the government... 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So before we get specifically into God's purpose of government, I want us to be reminded of the legitimate, the legitimate biblical reasons for disobeying the government. So when is resisting the governing authorities who are ordained by God the right thing for a Christian to do? And you'll remember that we said the first exception was they command you to do something that's in disobedience to God's word. They command you to do something that's in disobedience to God's word. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to fall down and worship the giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused. The Hebrew midwives refused to obey Pharaoh's command to kill the boy babies. They refused to do something that was in disobedience to God's word. The only other exception to obeying the governing authorities is when they try to prevent you from obeying God's word. Peter and John refused the command of the Jewish council to stop speaking and teaching the name of Jesus. The prophet Daniel refused the order to pray only to King Darius and not to pray to any other god. And then in history we saw the Anabaptists disobeyed the government by refusing to do something God had told them not to do. They refused to baptize their babies and they disobeyed the government by doing something the government told them to do. <laughs> and, uh, and vice versa. So they, they fit both of those, those reasons. So there are legitimate biblical limits on our obedience to the governing authorities. But we also must recognize that God places limits on the government and what it can do. As ordained and established by God, governments do have a God-given right. They have a God-given right to punish those who would overthrow them, to punish treason, to resist overthrow, to control riots, and to seek to preserve themselves in power, but only by legitimate means. Governments have that right. But we also must remember that such a right is always held under God. Under God. In 1954, in response to the communist threat of the times, President Eisenhower encouraged the Congress to add the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. The words under God reflect biblical truth. This nation, all nations, exist under God. And what that is saying, of course, is that nations are to recognize that they have limited power. They are agents of God, they are ministers of God, but they are not God. So there are some things that nations have no right to do, or governments have no right to get into. And the Bible is clear on what those kinds of things are. And if you look at verse 6 of this 13th chapter of Romans, I'll read this first, then we'll talk about it a little bit. For because of this... The necessary to be in subjection for conscience' sake, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
And you'll remember that there was that incident in Scripture where it came up, you know, Jesus and, and your disciples, you guys pay your taxes? And Peter was really wondering about this. I think Peter, in particular, always had trouble with the tax man, being a fisherman, and always have to pay taxes on those kind of things. And, and, and Jesus took a coin and held it up and said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. And he said, all right, then give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. But give to God the things that belong to God. And by this, he clearly indicated that there are limits in the power of government. Caesar has his image on certain things, his stamp on certain things. And these things belong to him. And rightfully so, Jesus is saying, what things Peter puts his image on belong to Caesar. And what things Jesus put his image on belong to Jesus. And so by implication, Jesus extends this to the world of things. The world of things. In other words, governments have authority over what we do with our property and how we behave with one another. Governments have authority on what we do with our property. We don't like that, especially in the Northwest and in Idaho. We, we don't like that. But if a person thinks that he can place his septic tank in his drainage field within a hundred feet of his neighbor's well and contaminate his neighbor's well with you know what, then he has another think coming. So governments have zoning ordinances, they have building codes, they have health and safety codes, and rightfully so. And governments also have authority with how we behave with one another. To do this, the government must legislate morality. You often hear that we should not legislate morality, but that, that's really an absurd argument because almost every law, and it could be argued every law, has a moral aspect. Don't drink and drive or you face the consequences. Why? Because if you drink and drive, it endangers one's own life and the lives of others. And so rightfully so, the government imposes personal moralistic beliefs all the time. We have laws against rape, wife beatings, honor killing, stealing, assault, murder, pedophilia, and many other immoral behaviors. And our government imposes these moralistic beliefs on everybody in society. They could be part of a minority that has different beliefs than this, but it's imposed on everybody in society. But our Lord clearly indicates that the government has no right to touch what God has put his image on which is the spirit of man. We are made in the image of God. We bear his stamp. Literally, the word is icon. It's the same way the stamp bears the image of, of Pharaoh, or Pharaoh, well, Pharaoh, that's him too, but Caesar on the coin, and we put the image of, of our leaders on, on currency and on coins. We are stamped. We bear the very image of, of God. And since we belong to God and bear his image, Caesar has no right to command how people worship or to forbid their obedience to the word of God. Rulers are under God. Therefore, they have no right to command men to do what God says ought not to be done or to command men not to do what God says should be done. And so there are limits of governmental powers. Governments are not to enslave men because men belong to God. Governments are not to oppress men 
and women, of course, because they bear the image of God. What bears God's image must be given to God, not to Caesar. Just as what bears Caesar's image must be given to Caesar and not necessarily to God. And so now the legitimate functions of government are further described for us in verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 13. If you want to turn there to the third verse of this 13th chapter. And Paul here succinctly says, The purpose for government is to protect law-abiding citizens and to publish lawbreakers. Paul here is presenting the general purpose and practice of government. You know, because this is not a statement or a thesis on what it means to have separation of church and state. Uh, That's not here at all in this passage. Or what a just war and an unjust war is. When should we go to war as a nation? When should we not go to war? You know, you're going to have to go to someplace else in Scripture in your own conscience to find those kind answers. This, This is not that kind of statement here. It's the purpose, the general purpose of government is to protect those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same, that is, from the authorities. For they are a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So here we say Christians are to submit to the governing authorities, not only because God appointed them and they're ordained, but he has also entrusted them with maintaining order in society. Without the government, there would be no order in society. You might remember in the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's anarchy. And that's a horrible way to live in that kind of society. But the government is to punish those who do wrong, and they are to reward those that do good. Secular rulers in doing this are carrying out God's purpose in the world. Now, Paul says that doing good will not only bring freedom from fear, but it'll even result in praise from rulers. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? If you're driving down the freeway and you're going over the speed limit, you don't have to keep looking in your rearview mirror and see where the speed traps are or look at your radar detector if you have, have one of those. You know, you don't have to be in that kind of fear. Or when you pass by the police officer and, you know, there's that speed trap and all of a sudden you see him, what do you do? You hit your brakes whether you're going too fast or not. You, you slow down. We don't have to live in that kind of fear if we obey the speed limit. Now, if you're obeying the speed limit, And the the officer is not going to pull you over and say, Sir, you are driving so beautifully that I just wanted to stop you and commend you for it. It's never going to happen. At least it hasn't happened to me. So, So what does it mean that we have praise from the rulers and the authorities when we do what is good? When Christians are known as law abiding citizens in the community, they are literally worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. We will be known in Emmett, will be known in the Treasure Valley as a people who are worthy of praise from our rulers because of our submissive attitude and obedience to the governing authorities. As Christians, we are to be a people who are worthy of praise from our community leaders. And so first we have the positive function of the ruler. 
The ruler praises those who do good. But then we see the negative function of the ruler punishing evil. Verse 4 again. For as a minister of God for you, for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. Is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In both the functions of praising those who do good and punishing evil, the secular ruler is carrying out God's purpose as his diakonos. That word sound familiar? We get the word deacon from it. It literally servant. It's translated minister or servant. The ruler is a minister of God, a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who is practicing evil. Governments are to protect us from evil. That is God's purpose. They are to preserve the security of people. They are to protect us from harm and attack from without, and they are to protect us from harm and attack from within. And for that purpose, governments properly have armies, they have police systems, they have courts of justice to preserve us from evil that is in our midst. And preserving the security of the people by protecting attacks from within and without certainly includes protecting us from the coronavirus and all its harmful effects. In this, they are a minister of God, a servant of God on our behalf. And how we as Christians respond to their authority will either bring praise or it will bring condemnation. In verse 5 of Romans chapter 13 shows us that we should be subject to the government not only because it is for our good, but because also it is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, as Christians, being in submission to the governing authorities, because they bear the sword, we might get in trouble, is only a minor reason for Christian submission to the authorities. The more basic reason for Christian submission is because of conscience' sake. It's just the right thing to do. And why is that? Because conscience here refers to the believer's knowledge of God's will and God's purposes. We have the knowledge of God's will and His purposes. Christians know what Paul has just taught here. Secular rulers are appointed by God. They are ordained by God. They are servants of God. And that they function, therefore, as God's servants. The Apostle Peter said much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know, people always wonder, what is God's will? What is God's will? There are seven or eight places in Scripture, and this is one of them where it says, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. As God's children, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we should realize with spiritual instinctiveness instinctiveness that disobedience of and disrespect for government is wrong and that obedience of and respect for it is right so let's turn over to first timothy chapter 2 first timothy chapter 2 verse 1 
In Paul's letter to Timothy, this first letter, we come back to the reason, really the reason why persecuted Christians came to this blessed land to begin with. Why the pilgrims, the Puritans, and the Anabaptists, and many other persecuted Christians, including the Baptists and the Quakers, came to this land to begin with. We are blessed to live in a country, even now, that has more religious freedom than any other country in the world. Now, I know that those freedoms are being infringed upon him more and more as we get into to these days, but uh, the freedoms that we enjoy are encapsulated in the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's recognized in the Pledge of Allegiance that we are one nation under God. And the subject of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that we are to pray. We are to pray. Verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why are we to pray for kings and all who are in authority? Why are we supposed to do that? Notice the so that that follows. So that. This is the reason. This is the purpose that we pray. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior. We should pray that those in authority would govern, govern and pass laws and enforce those laws so that we might enjoy a tranquil and quiet life. And this idea of a quiet life is also seen in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where a woman's adornment is to be Quote, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You see, a tranquil and quiet life is of the heart. It's of the spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. But the purpose for such a life is not so that we'd be comfortable and happy and we're free from stress and we're happy, lucky, go, whatever, with the flow and simply that we are unpunished and left alone and undisturbed by governor influence, the purpose is that so we may grow in godliness and dignity. We are to live in godliness, which means being reverent or devout. We are to live in dignity, which carries the nuance of commanding respect. Godliness and dignity point to the outer manifestation of the Christian virtues. In other words, it's what other people see in us. It's what other people see in us. How do we respond as Christians to the pandemic? How do we as Christians live under government restrictions? You see, Paul is concerned here about the testimony, the testimony for Jesus Christ of God's people. Because verse 4 says we are to pray for all people, including kings and all who are in authority, because verse 4 God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This goes back to the primary reason that the pilgrims and, and, and other persecuted Christians came to these shores to begin with. It was for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. The Mayflower Compact begins, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancements of the Christian faith, and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony 
in the northern parts of Virginia. Wow, it doesn't get any better than that. To the glory of God, to the advancement of the Christian faith, honor the king. That really sums it up, doesn't it? And when it comes to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there's a famous quote that was often used by Ronald Reagan. Remember that about the shining city on a hill? Governor Winthrop, when he was making his big speech, and they were beginning to, be, to, to plant this colony in a new world and establish governments and, and, uh, and work for, for bringing people to Jesus Christ and all that new community would be, Governor Winthrop described it as a city upon a hill. And he said, the eyes of all people are on us. We are a city on the hill. The eyes of all people are on us, meaning if the Puritans failed to uphold their covenant with God, then their sins and errors would be exposed for all the world to see. Winthrop continued, so that if we shall deal, deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. The world was watching them. The world is watching our nation. And the nation is watching our churches. And what do they see when they see Grace Baptist Church? What do they see? We want them to see a people of the book. A people of the word of God. We want them to see godly people who love God, who love one another, who serve one another and make sacrifices for one another. We want them to see Christians who love each other as Christ loved us as he gave his up his life up for them. We want them to see people who have quiet and gentle spirits who think not of their own comfort and happiness, but of people who will do whatever it takes to protect the life and health of others. We want them to see those who are worthy of praise. We want our leaders to see those who are worthy of praise. The mayor, the city council, how we respond during this time as God's people. We want the governor to see how we respond as God's people because this is the governor. Emmett's the governor's hometown. His home is here. He grew up with many of us. We want to be people worthy of praise. And mostly we want them to see something in us and something about us that would make them want what we have. And you know what that is. A personal, loving, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we open up our church more and more over these next coming weeks, we have a blessed opportunity to show Christ to our community. And as we enjoy beginning to week once more and in growing numbers and however that works over the next coming, whether it's weeks, months, or, or, or whatever it is, we are going to trust God and trust Him that they will see something in us that will give us the opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. So let's pray in His name. Our Heavenly Father, 
You know, we're under a type of restriction, Father, that uh, we've never faced in this nation before. Father, and restrictions on when we can meet and where we can meet and how we can meet, Father. But help us to remember, Lord, the, the, the church is not a building. The church is the people. And you have given us wonderful opportunities to work and serve uh, one another, Father. You know, we have this technology today with telephones and, and uh, email and text and, and so many ways, Father, that we can keep in contact with one another. And, and uh, so, Father, I pray that as we, we begin opening up the church, Father, that uh, they will be able through, through medicine and science and technology to get, get a handle on this virus very quickly, Father. We pray for the scientists and, and medical people who are working on vaccines and treatments, Father, and we pray that that will be, be very swift, that it will be quicker than anybody thought, and, and that, Father, you would get the praise and the glory for that. May it be in a way, Father, that uh, glorifies you, Lord. And, Father, I pray for our, your protection upon us as a church and wherever people are listening today, Lord, that uh, you would protect us from the virus and and, uh, and other things, and those especially, Father, who are unemployed at this time, and those who cannot do their business, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, ways will be found to get, to the, get food to the people who need it. The ways will be found for people to get medical care who need it, Lord. And, and Father, I just pray that uh, through our government and, and other uh, organizations who are working so hard on this, Father, I just pray that you would protect each person in that kind of ministry and service, Father. And uh, we thank you for the many ways that uh, people can be blessed and fed and their needs met during this time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.